I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch, and welcome to Sports Media Podcast. My producer is Patrick Antonetti. Uh, two guests this week. Uh, I really enjoyed doing this podcast. Um, this was just really, really interesting for me. First up is Leslie Visser, the uh, you know, Hall of Fame sports broadcaster. If you're in, if you if you're listening to this podcast, the likely it is you know who Leslie Visser is. She this month will become the first woman to receive the Emmy Sports Lifetime Achievement Award that's being given out at uh, New York City's Lincoln Center. Uh, Leslie Visser, essentially a career firsts, first woman enshrined in the Pro Football Hall of Fame, first woman to work uh, the NBA Finals in broadcasting, same with the World Series, first woman assigned to the Super Bowl sideline. Uh, we had a great conversation, 50 minutes about her career, some, some really fascinating stories, including ice fishing with John Madden, um, how she navigated... Uh, working for the Boston Globe and being in television. Uh, Leslie Visser covered uh, uh, the fall of the Berlin Wall, at least on the, a sports uh, component. Somebody who's interviewed uh, you know, Billie Jean King, Michael Jordan, Bill Russell, did the Celtics-Lakers 1984 series, You know, worked with Al Michaels, worked with everybody. Again, this, essentially this is a career that uh, can't be duplicated. And it's amazing like when she talked about just how she started in this business when – they would cross out like clubhouse access because she was a woman, so she she could not get into the clubhouse in the seventies, uh, given those sexist policies. And uh, again, uh, just like remarkable what she's done. Uh, I got great admiration for her, so I think you'll you'll absolutely enjoy that interview. She's followed uh, once again by another pioneer, uh, Ileana Limon Romero. She became first uh, female sports editor. This month in the Los Angeles Times' history, she's currently the only Latina sports editor for a major new, uh, newspaper in the United States. She discussed what a sports editor at a major metro daily like the LA Times does, uh, how you go about trying to cover all of LA sports, uh, who she envisions the LA Times reader will be, uh, what it's like uh, covering the Lakers right now, which is kind of like a fascinating shit show. Uh, talked about high school coverage in, and um, college coverage in Los Angeles, just given uh, those prominent teams. So that was really, really interesting. And so you'll find that interesting, and particularly find that interesting, obviously, if you're, if you're California-based. So two great guests, Leslie Visser to start, Ileana Limon Romero to finish on the Sports Media Podcast. All right, as I said at the top, and I gave her an intro there. This will be a little shorter one. Leslie Visser, uh, again, if you have watched television, let's say, you know, the last 40 years, you're probably aware of who she is. The um, the longtime broadcaster and sports writer this month will receive the Emmys Sports Lifetime Achievement Award. She's the first woman to receive that. Interestingly enough, like this award was given to Leslie in 2020, but because of COVID, they couldn't do a in-person ceremony. So on May 24th, 
at uh, Lincoln Center's Frederick P. Rose Hall, very close to where I used to live. Uh, Leslie will be honored um, by that body. We listed some of her uh, firsts at the top, and uh, I am pleased to be joined by Leslie Visser. Leslie, welcome to Sports Media Podcast. Richard, isn't it interesting that we've gone from print beat to <laughs> radio, TV? It's uh, what an evolution for both of us. I know. All right. So, Leslie, I'm going to eventually you know, ask you probably some questions that uh, you will expect. I guarantee you don't expect this for your first question. You ready? Tell me about the ice fishing trip that you and John Madden went on in Minneapolis for prior to the Super Bowl in 1992. Oh, yeah, that's true. No one has ever asked, asked me in detail about it, and certainly not the first question. Uh, it was, um, well, you knew John probably pretty well, too. Just to a little be with bit. John. Not, not great, but, you know, I, I talked to him a couple of times. Well, just to be with him was such an adventure. You know, I always thought he was like um, a modern Mark Twain. He was a great observer and a great communicator. And he always, we'd be riding that bus. And if he saw lights in a field, we'd stop for a girl's softball game. Or if he heard, of course, it was almost always Mexican food at the time. But if anyone said, oh, if you just go 40 miles in this direction, there'll be a great Mexican restaurant, we'd go and stop. Um, you know, he had the famous Chewies outside of El Paso, where they called it the Madden, they had a corner for him, the Madden Hall of Fame, which was spelled H-A-U-L, <laughs> because <laughs> he would, he was like in diner, you know, order the left side of the menu. <laughs> That's funny. But um, he said, you know, everybody talks about ice fishing in Minnesota. John was actually born in Minnesota. A lot of people don't know that. And it's so fitting. He was born in Austin, Minnesota, which is the home of Spam. <laughs> Isn't wow. that perfect for the everyday man? And uh, he said, we got to go ice fishing. So first we all had to go get the outfits. So we went to some tackle and bait shop and got everything. And, you know, it was skinny Richie Zions and heavy Lance <laughs> Barrow, our producer, legendary guys. And um, I think both Joe and Mike, John's sons, were on the trip. And so we drove north of Minnesota to Malax, which is where the frozen ice, the lake is. And the Madden cruiser went right up to the edge of the lake. And then wow. we all got out and sort of shuffled our way out. And John would not let us have those warming huts that like everybody, people from Minnesota sit in them. And John said, no, those were for chicken, you know, bad name people. And we had to sit on these turned over buckets. And of course, we didn't catch anything. I mean, you think Lance Barrow and Richie and John, we had no idea what we were doing. So we didn't catch anything. So some guy from a warming hut gave us fish that he'd caught and we fried them up on the Madden cruiser, fresh. Lance knows how to cook, going back to Minnesota. And it, we all said best fish we ever ate. Love it. One more about Madden. You know, you... You traveled with him at a time, this is pre-social media, um, where really mostly, yes, cable exists, but, you know, the three-channel universe is still prominent. Uh, most Many people are getting their information from newspapers. You know, Sports Illustrated is obviously a major dominant player. Um, but Madden was like a rock star for that era. And I wonder if, um, how do I ask this? Do, like, could, if he comes 20, 25 years later, is it the same? Like, could, could, like, I almost wonder, this is just sort of my hypothesis, if because of the sort of the world we live in now, maybe he's over-criticized. Maybe there's so much coverage on him that, that people aren't necessarily charmed by Madden, but they're 
there's too much of Madden. I, I feel like he, in some ways, I'm glad he came around when he did because I think his star was so great and so interesting that maybe it might have come off differently today in 2022. That's just sort of my thought. Yeah, it's interesting you say because we live in informational excess, but I think great yes. is great. Al Michaels would have been great. Uh, 25 years, probably still will be 25 years from now. And he is still considered, Bob Costas is still considered so great. And they're, they're operating in today's world. So yeah, I think John, he just, uh, he was so original and he was also, I don't know if people are aware, you probably are, but aware of how deep he was. You know how you always read that his favorite book was Travels with Charlie? Well, people who yeah. read that Steinbeck book, uh, it, it actually was about the integration of the six-year-old Ruby Bridges, the young African-American girl who integrated the schools in New Orleans. She integrated the South. And John didn't go around parading that that's what it was about, but it was a very important book because, you know, John was colorblind. I, I don't know if you truly, if that word, to whatever that word can really mean, he was. And um, he wanted people to know that book, but he wasn't going to hit you over the head with it. And I think it just speaks. He, the man had so much depth and compassion and, uh, I don't know, empathy for, it didn't matter who it was, an elevator operator. He used to sit in the lobby. You've probably heard this story. We would always stay at the Ritz in Chicago, the one on Pearson, a block from um, uh, off Michigan. And um, he, he would sit there because he loved to see people, talk to people. And I don't know, Richard, do you know the story about the British guy who came up to him? No. Oh, okay. So a British guy came up to him and said, you know, look, I live in England, but um, I get tapes of your games. And I just, I have to say, I so much enjoy you. And, you know, John was like, wow, that's you know really pretty cool. And then later he told Sandy Montag, he said, kind of this weirdo guy, you know, came up to me, but he was... I mean, he was an interesting guy, but he looked kind of weird with these big glasses. And Sandy said, that was Elton John. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <Elton> John. <laughs> that's, a, that's, only, that's a story that only happens at the, like a Ritz-Carlton, basically. Uh, yeah, right. Right. All right. So let's get to the... So let's get to the Emmy Sports Lifetime Achievement Award. Obviously, it's a major honor. And you, you are someone who has been given major honors before. You're the first woman enshrined in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. You know, I'm sure you have a raft of Emmys somewhere behind you in your office and other stuff. So here's what I want to ask you, because this is sort of interesting to me, and I think you'll provide some interesting insight. There are times when actors have been nominated or actresses have not nominated, I'm sorry, when actors or actresses have been given these large honors that reflect their careers. And on the one hand, the actors and actresses say, we're appreciative of this, but at the same time, like we don't want to give a retirement speech. And oftentimes these like lifetime achievement awards can feel like a thanks so much for the memories so long. So how do you approach it? Because you're still hosting a podcast. You're still working in the business. So you want to be appreciative, obviously, of this honor. At the same time, you know, you don't want this to be a living funeral, right? So how do you how do you navigate those sort of two worlds? Because not many people have to navigate them, but you in our business, you happen to be one of these people who do. Who do. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, what I did and what I'm planning to do is um, I did a video. I, you know, they do the vi setup videos, but I'm going to make that sort of my, I'm just going to let my career 
speak for itself all the way back to the globe. I have, you know, credentials that where clubhouse is crossed out. You know, I can go in the press box. I can go on the field. Wow. Clubhouse is uh, crossed out. I have, uh, you know, stories from when the Cotton Bowl had to issue me an apology for physically throwing me out and then going into oh my all my um, CBS, you know, two times total of million years at CBS plus ABC. And, you know, it's a lot of firsts. First woman on Monday Night Football first. So I want, I just want a video that I think is interesting because Barry Frank, who is, um, my agent for all those years now, Sandy is who that about covers yeah. everybody at the Emmys. <laughs> but um, well, those are those are those are those are two big dogs when it comes to agents in the business. Those are the guys. Uh, and um, yeah. Barry once told me, Leslie, you you have enough of a critical mind and a sense of humor that if it's going to bore you, it's going to bore the audience. So I just want this video to be, you know, kind of fun and interesting. And I have been in positions to break some barriers. And then I really am just going to sort of thank the half dozen people who really made my career possible. And, you know, I'm still at CBS. I've, I've never still been hired by a woman, but there were men who took great opportunity, great risks in giving me these opportunities. And it's really those half dozen guys that I, I want to thank, plus the women I work with now. Wow. Never been hired by a woman here that, hear that, yeah. that, um, you, um, you wrote for the Boston Globe for 12 years. I Am I right about that? I did. I, I started okay. at CBS and I was still, the Globe still kept me because the Globe was the place you may not remember, but when I started in print, TV were the other guys, right? They, that's correct. Yes. And it was that, what's that expression? Less than, <laughs> that's how we, right. that's how we felt about selling, selling at those kids, yeah, sell out. Um, but anyway, so, so I, I worked for both um, CBS and The Globe for about six years there. Before you went, obviously, to television full-time. So you wrote for The Globe when there were very few women full-time writers at major newspapers like that. So for people who are bo born post-2000, so people who are listening to – or post-1995, let's say, in, in my audience who are you know, 25, 30, can you give them a sense of like how challenging it was to be a woman – at that time, at a high-profile place like the Boston Globe, where there were so few women, um, I imagine, with you in clubhouses and on the beat. And again, like, you know, th think about the time, like, Leslie was doing this. And, you know, she just mentioned earlier in this broadcast that, like, they crossed out clubhouse. I assume they crossed that out because you were a woman, right? Woman is not allowed in the clubhouse after the game. Yeah, I mean, I was always the only woman. There were... Um the Boston Globe took a great risk. I went to the Globe on a Carnegie Foundation grant, which um, now this is not the 1800s. This was 1973. I won it while I was in college um, at Boston College. And they were given to 20 women in America who wanted to go into jobs that were 95% male. Now, this was all white collar jobs. Women were just starting to go to law school and medical school. And just to give it some perspective, women... I could not have my own credit card in my name until the mid-70s. So it was just to be a woman. I'd always wanted to cover sports. So I won one of these Carnegie Foundation grants. I mean, a woman from Johns Hopkins won it for ophthalmology, a woman from Michigan wow. for archaeology. So uh, I went to the Globe on the Carnegie stipend. And like you said, it was the Boston Globe. We always got voted number one. I was nervous as anything. 1974, I'm the intern 
downturn there. And it was the 27 Yankees. It was Bob Ryan on basketball, Peter Gammons on baseball, Will McDonough on football, and Bud Collins on tennis. I mean, it was crazy. So um, the good news was that I was trained at a really high level at an early age, and they gave me big responsibilities. And, you know, I must have delivered on the promise because I kept getting the assignments. But they made me um, the first woman to cover the NFL as a beat, which um, the Patriots, you know, they thought I was from Mars. But um, I was not a storm the barricades kind of personality. I was more used humor kind of as a default mechanism or Boy, it must be weird for them, too. But, of course, there were no provisions for equality. I did all the interviews out in the parking lots, whether it was raining or freezing, yeah. and there'd be no other help. Like, you know, in a locker room now, everybody sticks a mic in the same place, but it would be all on me. And um, Madden, years later, told me I was caught in a two-way go because I either had to decide, okay, should I get Terry Bradshaw, who's getting on the Steelers bus, or, oh my God, there goes Steve Grogan, the quarterback of the Patriots, over to his car, so I got to grab him. So it was, it was actually a very good training ground, I think, to have to, well, I mean, I had an optimistic view of it rather than why me, but uh, I, I felt I didn't want to complain to the NFL because they might say, oh, see, a woman you know, can't do it. I didn't want to complain to the Globe. I didn't want them... But I mean, there there weren't there wasn't even a ladies' room in the press box. <laughs> That's amazing. I I mean, I remember uh, you know I've talked to Claire yeah. Smith uh, a couple times about this. Like she had to, you know, people like uh, she was always indebted to people like Steve Garvey, who would be like who would come out like intentionally from the locker room to talk to her outside of the locker room. Sometimes bring other um, teammates along, but just like again to think about this in twenty in a twenty twenty two construct is just. Well, not only is it just gross, it's just like, it's almost inconceivable because you can't even imagine like someone, you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't even know how you could do the job without that kind of access. So for what you guys were able to do then, it's, it's almost incredible that you're actually able to file copies. Well, it was, uh, you know, it was a true frontier then, Claire being among the greats. I mean, all those, the early women, we used to say we will have made it when we're not on each other's holiday card list. Because there were about four of us, you know, yeah. it was Robin Herman. I mean, there was nobody. Right. But uh, it was, um, yeah, it was real navigation. I remember once Dale Murphy, who everybody loves, right? He was a great guy. Dale yeah. Murphy uh, was uh, strong in his faith and didn't think women yeah, should have equal right. access. And Dale said, um, if she comes in the clubhouse, I won't talk to anyone. So, Wow. You know, that made me the bad guy. But God bless, like Claire had yep. Steve Garvey, both Dave Anderson and Peter Gammon stayed outside with me. So you needed, wow. you know, depending on the kindness of not so strangers. But yeah, it was a lot of navigation then. And, uh, you know, I, I mean, like Claire, we all have scar tissue, but I just I looked at it like, um, I mean, I don't know if you want to go into all this, but my dad grew up in Amsterdam under the Nazis. So I used to say to myself, okay, this is tough, but <laughs> yes. Yeah, rel rel relatively. <laughs> which, which helped uh, me. Wow. Did, is, are you, so your family uh, is Dutch? My, my is mom is um, second generation Irish, but my dad was from Amsterdam. And, um, you know, I don't know how much time they spent there. They're just great people. And it's, been, and been Amsterdam, it's, it's yeah. a great city, it's a liberal city. city and, his family was not Jewish. Visser is like incredibly common over there. It's like Johnson. But everybody was helping the Jews. And then 
uh, uh, Holland was Rotterdam was bombed in 1940. They were occupied until 45. That's everybody right. was starving. Everybody was trying to help um, the, the underground Jewish um, community. And, um, you know, by the end, the Germans were in forced labor, all the Dutch. They used all the Dutch people. So, you know, it was a very, very difficult right. time. My dad came here after Holland was liberated. He was a little bit older. And um, I don't know. So it, it was helpful to me. Uh, and also, I think if you're a native Bostonian, you, you grow up thinking, you know, we grow up on the founding fathers. And I don't know. I don't know sports gambling well, but who would have made book on picking these 13 ragtag colonies over the greatest naval force, military force <laughs> in the world? That's right. Yeah. The U.S. <laughs> plus 500, but they, they came through on Um <laughs> What, um, what, at his, I mean, I, I would have to think money was a factor here, but when you ultimately decided to switch from uh, print full time to television, was it just a case of like, you, you had to do it? They were making you just a one, a lucrative offer, but two, you also were part of a new frontier, obviously, in terms of breaking through some of this stuff. Yeah, I, I obviously wasn't afraid of being um, a pioneer or a trailblazer. And Ted Shaker said to me, our great, great, I owe so many of my opportunities to Ted Shaker. He said, uh, Leslie, we've had a woman who knew television, Phyllis George, who was a great friend of mine. Phyllis and I, as a matter of fact, we used to talk about the hate mail we'd get when I was at the Globe and she was at CBS. And she said, look, do it this way. It's a lot quicker just to read the good letters. <laughs> so we would laugh about that. But Ted said we had a woman, a great woman, Phyllis, who knew TV, but Sports weren't her strength. So this time we want to hire a woman who knows TV and we'll teach you the a woman who knows sports and we'll teach you the TV. And um, I thought, OK, a whole new set of muscles to flex. And I covered all the sports they put on. So I said, uh, here goes. But I learned a lot of lessons when network TV was only a few channels and <laughs> made my mistakes in front of everybody. The um, I think people who listen to this will have no idea that you covered this, but I happen to see it. CBS sent you to cover the fall of the Berlin Wall, right? Like, so how, um, how does that come about? How does someone who's known for sports get to cover one of the signature news moments of the 20th century? Yeah, uh, well, I think uh, Dan Rather had started in sports. Walter Cronkite did sports. Ronald Reagan did sports. It's sort of, and you know this, if you can cover sports, which are live, that means you think, you think on deadline and um, I encourage this when I speak at a fair amount of colleges that young people should read everything, not just the silo of their basketball or the NFL. But you, if you read everything, it gives you perspective. And uh, when I started at the Globe, not one person had majored in communications. Everybody was history, politics, wow. English, yeah. uh, literature. So uh, I believe that Ted Shaker trusted that uh, my my little slice of it was how sports would change. I mean, you remember Katerina Witt had been the yeah, beautiful okay. face of socialism and she lived, I mean, her apartment, right. she really lived in a Western world, but her apartment was right, not, <clears throat> excuse me, not far from the wall. So Ted Shaker said, okay, how will things change in East Germany once the reunification happens? And um, it was, it was staggering to go through Checkpoint Charlie, because Katerina did an interview with us, to go through was like going from color to black and white. And it, 
was a, a half a mile. You know, wow. all of a sudden the buildings were drab and the people were huddled and, you know, the, the toilet paper was like sandpaper. It was just, and plus for me, having my dad's background to see those people who'd walked with just, you know, a couple pots, like you see the Ukrainian refugees leaving, they walked just yeah. to get through that Brandenburg gate and smell and breathe freedom. And I was like, what do we ever complain about? Yeah, it gives you, I mean, I can imagine that assignment must have given you just a new appreciation of the good fortune for all of us to being sort of born where we are, you know, freedom country, Western world, et cetera. You, you know, my get, the, the answer for you might be no one, but like, you know, in doing a little bit of research, like, you know, you've been part of um, ceremonies with Bill Russell or interviewed Michael Jordan, Billy Jean King. Is there anybody like, let's forget about modern day today, but was there anyone for whatever reason that you wanted to have some kind of interaction with in a journalistic or interview setting that you were not able to in the in the 80s and 90s? Because in looking through your sort of resume, you really like, you, you encountered some of the most famous sporting figures, not just like in the U.S., but like globally. Yeah, um, you know, thanks for mentioning that. No, I do believe that. I mean, I even covered Prince Albert in the bobsled. <laughs> so. Wow. Pro well, like Albertville or something. Yeah, like isn't that, that right? ironic? And he wouldn't, by the way, maybe. people at home can't, yeah. but see back there, I was the first woman. I don't have enough first, right? First woman to go down the Olympic bobsled. And they gave they let me you? keep the How helmet. No, it was terrifying, but it was. He would. <laughs> yeah, um, I didn't think so. <laughs> he, Prince Albert was there. Uh, it was when Herschel Walker was on the team. Yep. So they they invited That's me. That's right. Yeah. And women were never allowed before because they thought our trap muscles weren't strong enough because the G forces are very strong and oh, your head would. Yeah. By the way, how stupid is that given just how great the women bobsledders oh, now it's, are? In the uh, yeah, yeah, isn't it? I mean, it's nuts. Women yeah. couldn't run the marathon, <laughs> right? Because they were going to die at the end. So um, That's, uh, yeah. Prince Albert, and he would introduce himself as Al Grimaldi. That's, you know, he, he was the most wow. normal. I mean, it was so, yes, I mean, sports, I always say it's the ultimate passport. Um, but I, uh, I got to, I actually got to meet Nelson Mandela for five seconds. Five seconds was. Um, wow. But, you know, there are people I would have loved, of course, to have sat down with him. Uh, you know, I would, um, I would say the ones that I missed um, because of, of an age factor. I went once on a pilgrimage to Port Arthur, Texas, uh, because Babe Didrikson to me, I mean, she was the greatest athlete of the, she was called Babe, right? Yeah. Voted by the AP. Yeah. The 20th century. Yes, greatest she was. And athlete, I mean, right? she, she was called Babe because she hit five home runs in a game. She, she won gold in every Olympic event she entered. She was the greatest golfer. So I said, I have to see, where this woman grew up and I went. Uh, so I, I do, I do sports is the ultimate passport. And if you're, if you're aware, right, if you're taking it in, it's, you know, I always say I, I, I don't have a billion dollars, but I've had a billion dollar life. Yeah. Well said. Um, you did the Celtics Lakers in 1984. Um, Celtics won that series in seven games there are obviously, as you know, like the NBA has exploded in terms of its social media fandom. Like everything is sort of uh, talked about. The the newsbreakers today, Leslie, as you know, are like stars like Adrian Wojnarowski is like as famous as like uh, NBA players. So you're doing this series like even though it's whatever, it's 30, 
40, 38 years ago. It really does feel like the Ice Age in some ways. Um, what what was it like to be covering like the NBA in the 80s? Like this is like right before the Jordan sort of explosion and everything changes in terms of, you know, global, like becomes like the global league of the world. Um, man, I can't just imagine because like those are I looked on the court, like who you would have been covering. Kareem, Magic, Worthy, Mikhail, Bird, Parrish. It's like incredible. It like it feels like uh it's amazing like the series that you covered just even in eighty four or so. And I know you're a Boston person, so we'll just take that specific one. What was that covering like something like well, that? Well, like? it was um sort of the beginning. Uh, well, the Lakers Celtics series uh just never gets old. You know, it's it's like some of the old World right. Series that you see that uh, it just doesn't it doesn't age in the sense of its greatness. And like you say, there were just Hall of Famers, not just great players. There were Hall of Famers on both rosters. It was yeah, um, it was yeah. epic. It was. Uh, and yet the difference in the time was that um, the players flew commercially. We'd be on flights with the players. We'd be on flights. Jack Nicholson, I remember. Remember after he gave the choke sign, uh, it was, he. Uh, then we all had to get yeah. on the plane together. And the movie that was on the plane was Terms of Endearment, and he and he didn't even look up. But it was. Uh, he always traveled with Lou Adler, like we all thought it was Donald Sutherland, right? But it was Lou Adler. Yeah. And uh, but it was. That's right. Um, That's right. It, it was a community of people. There was great respect between the teams, but also. After the Celtics lost game three is when Bird said we're playing like sissies. And the next game is when McHale clothesline Rambus. And OK, now Rambus will be suspended right. for like, what, a month? Oh, no, it was a two shot foul. Like, that's what it was. And life went on. And that's when Red didn't air condition the uh, locker rooms and they were a million degrees. And yeah, that's right. So game seven was like supposed to like the like yeah. 90 degrees in the arena. Yeah, it was, I think, was. one of the earlier games. Hot. But um, yeah, it was like 102 degrees in there. Kareem sucking on oxygen. I mean, it was just um, and, and everybody right. made fun of everybody. And I mean, that was really a hallmark, I have to say, of what I learned from the Globe is that. Yeah. Did you were you doing was that what, for that? Were you what was your role? Uh, yeah, I was just like covering that series. You know, remember? couple sideline things and i also would do you know maybe a sidebar okay. for the globe so i was still trying to work both with which was so really hard because i had no there. role model for yeah uh, you know a woman being on the nba finals do i wear short heels do i wear pants i mean i had yeah. no idea what no idea yeah. no there yeah there was no no one you, you're yes. literally honestly making it up as you go along there is no you yeah. there's no representation you could you could uh, no, and I made a lot. Of, I mean, there, there was I, no I had a hat phase, you know, which was I didn't know what I was doing. It was freezing, like I'd be freezing in these places, Lambo and <laughs> um, Chicago, and you know, people didn't even do NFL sidelines back then. So uh, I remember once Ted Shaker came running out of the truck at a Bears game in Soldier Field and said, "You've got to take that hat off," because I thought it was sort of cute, you know, but I guess it looked like a satellite dish or something. I don't know. And so Ted said, "You've got to take that off." But any woman knows that once you put a hat on, you have hat hair, right? You can't do that. So but anyway, there was just so right. much I was having to take in at a time to try to organize and. You know, when you're the only one, it, the, there was so much focus on it. But what I did learn at the Globe is humor. The Globe's idea was, you know, be smart, be funny. Um, don't take the floor unless you have something to say. So I, I really 
I tried to use the Nora Ephron, uh, write it down, everything's a bit. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, this is a question I wanted to ask you when uh, when we had set this podcast up, because I'm really kind of fascinated by how you will answer it. Um, you came up in an era prior to um, essentially the advent of the internet as a driving force in all of our lives. And certainly... Um, you came up prior to social media being as big as it is today. There are obvious advantages in terms of the web and social media in terms of it has certainly made people famous and prominent and probably you can monetize, not probably, you can monetize that fame into big money, maybe millions of dollars. The downside, as we all know, it's an incredibly toxic place. Women sportscasters as prominent as you are um, talked about every time they're on the air. They're usually sexualized. So much of it is based on physical appearance. So when you sort of look at this writ large, how do you feel about coming up at a time prior to this? Because there would be obvious disadvantages, but also there are advantages in terms of your fame can get exponentially bigger, which your agent might tell you could get you lucrative dollars. So you're one of the few people who could actually answer this question because you had that fame prior to all of this explosion. Yeah, I just had about six thoughts colliding there. Um, gosh, okay. Uh, number one, uh, I was never interested in fame ever. It was not something when we grew up or when I grew up, television was for Huntley and Brinkley and Walter Cronkite. I mean, TV was so far from anything. Mine was your old Sports Illustrated. Wow, if I could ever write anything like Curry Kirkpatrick or Frank DeFord, like that would be my life. And I wanted to be a sports writer from the time I was 10 years old. The job didn't exist for women. But in television, it never entered my mind until Ted Shaker came along. But I do think for a while, I really felt there were two kinds of women who do this. There were women who wanted to be on TV and they ended up in sports and there were women who love sports and they ended up on TV. And right. I think those were different animals. I think most of the women you see now, um, I'm grateful for it. They're really good. They're really good and they're, they're honorable and, and they seem to love what they're doing. But I just was never somebody who, I remember I was offered, remember the Miller Light ads, which at the time were huge? Yeah. Uh, Bob Euchre, Rick Riley did one of those actually with somebody, if I remember right. He did. Wow, that's great. Well, they were, yeah. they were um, originally it was um, Madden and Lasorda. And oh, that's right. Madden. All those guys. Right, yeah. Taste great, less filling. That's right. Right, Johnny Bench. So they offered me one of those, and I was so troubled. And here's another time where John Madden really came through for me. Um, I was offered one of those, and the storyboard was that I was in a locker room, and I had to pull a towel away from a player and say oh to the camera, that's all you have to know about locker room coverage. And it was so I, – I, it, it makes me – tight thinking of it right now because I said, I, I can't, yeah, I can't gross. do this. And they said, Oh, have a sense of humor. It's just about having a sense of humor. And I called John. I said, John, I, I've worked so hard against this um, depiction of women. And uh, he said, um, you know what? Don't be Rosa Parks. You do not have to go to the back of the bus. Hmm. Um. Well, it's once again, Matt, and uh, sort of as a, ad advising you there. So what do you, so what do you think? Do you think in terms of um, 
it would have changed your career, right? If you're if you're coming up with all that kind of sort of online social media attention. Is there any part of you that, I mean, again, I, you you have obviously in many ways had it much harder than the people today. At the same time, though, is there was there a benefit to not have that every one of your singular moves sort of analyzed to the nth degree? Well, I do feel for people, I wish people wouldn't engage in the Twitter wars. You know, it, Ernie Acorsi, the great general manager, of course, you know, is with the Colts and the Giants and Cleveland. Yep. And he once said, you know, if somebody doesn't have a stake in the opinion of you, uh, then you must disregard it. If that person, uh, yeah, if that person is not doesn't have a stake, it's not your colleague or your boss. And maybe you can say fans do have a stake, you know, maybe that. But to get caught up in that as if that is the equal of a colleague or a boss or a critic, you know, people who do what you do, which is your trained observers of people in our business, that's different from just, you know, some guy or some woman tossing out something that people engage in. And um I don't know. I wish I wish they wouldn't. I wish people in our business would not yeah. engage in that. It's not going to change. I hate to say it. Okay, all right, a couple more things here that I want to get to. You you're uh you work without Michaels. Uh and so now you see him um in his post Sunday night football. He's now the, you know, piloting like uh, James T Kirk, a new adventure here for uh for Amazon. What's your reaction to seeing Al continuing to work at his age? And not just work, but continuing to essentially be thought of as as the gold standard at what he does. He, um, you know, Hubie Brown, and there's some others who like it's uh, Vince Scully. Obviously, it's cool. They like they. I think they're probably not going to realize this, but we'll realize it a hundred years from now. They have helped redefine um, ageism a little bit at the highest levels of broadcasting. In that, the notion that somehow you have to walk away at sixty or something like that no longer exists if you have. If, if you're still doing the job at the levels that like people like yeah, that. Yeah, no, I, I love Al. Um, I mean, you know all this about him, but I, I Al is, you know, among the best. I mean, I, I feel like I was surrounded by greatness. I mean, I got to work with Dick Emberg and Vern oh, yeah. and you, Summerall. You know, I, I was raised amazing. on more of a minimalist. Yeah. My childhood was Kirk Gowdy. But uh, I feel who, all, by the way, all those gentlemen won the lifetime achievement, all storytellers, all yeah. just expert at their craft. And, uh, but with Al, I mean, I did Monday night with him. I did the triple crown with him. I did, uh, the world series with him. He never lets a broadcast hang. It could be, you know, a nuclear warfare in the background and Al never loses uh, one second of the broadcast. But, uh, he, I told him, I said, you are now, it, it's, so great for young people who go to the beach and stream the game or wherever they go, maybe they're out in the backyard, that that generation, these generations are going to have you, Al, that why not that they're going, the way I grew up with Kirk Gowdy, the way he grew up with Vin Scully, they are going to grow up with Al Michaels and it's being delivered where they watch the game. And I, I'm so excited and I, I'm, I'm glad all those people are making that money. I'm hoping it's the Reagan, you know, the rising tide raises <laughs> raises all the boats. But um, Al, and you know, Al is, um, he's fearless. Uh, you probably know that he, um, he did not care for the Clintons. And I would. <laughs> yeah, Al's, I mean, just for my audience, I think I, I'm sure they probably know this. Uh, if you've heard some of the different podcasts, uh, 
I don't even know if I got into this with Alan Anaposka, but Al's a pretty big GOP supporter. It's not uh it's not an unknown. Yeah, he and he business. you know, I mean, uh, I've debated everything with him, which is great, but you know, he he was yeah. um you know, sort of in the days when Tip O'Neill and Reagan could talk across the aisle. I mean, yeah. Right. That's kind of Al's He's here, reasonable. right? He's sort of, but yeah, he just right. did not care for the Clintons. So when um, the uh, Whitewater investigation happened, we were doing a game in Green Bay. And I have to say, I think this is the only time I completely abandoned my journalistic standards. So I was interviewing Bart Starr on the sideline. And at the end, I threw it back to Al. There you have it, Al. The Star Report. <laughs> And Al, Al went crazy. Wow, it was like his line, favorite sideline report ever <laughs> because he but Al, you know, I love people that, you know, they can intellectually play at a high level. And so, yeah, Al, I'm, I'm yeah. really I'm, I'm happy for him. I think it'll be great. Yeah. All right. Independent. Of Clint, <laughs> Ken Starr. I, I got no time for that guy. Uh, anyway, all right. So a couple more things here, uh, Leslie, before we get out of here. Um, and I should have mentioned too, by the way, in terms of people like sort of excelling, um, and sort of changing the, 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 the game when it comes to age, Pam Oliver is another one who's just, uh, and sometimes underrated, you know, yeah, not sometimes and absolutely underrated. And these, uh, yeah, Pam's been a guest. I, I love Pam. She's been a guest on the podcast and these idiots at Fox almost, f- almost let her go. Not just from the number one team, but from the entire you know, NFL coverage until they finally sort of sent became. Well, actually, she called them out on it, but just they they that would have been a horrific decision that at least they. I'll tell you how fixed. great they're. They're a way. group of us, Suzanne Smith. I mean, these are all my buddies. Oh, we love Suzanne. We nominate Suzanne them Smith. all the time for things because. Yeah. Just to mention, by the way, Suzanne Smith is, um, is. like Leslie Visser in many ways. Um, a pioneer when it comes to production. She's the first she, uh, woman, was the first woman to direct the NFL, still continues to do it. She's on the number two team with Ian Eagle, Charles Davis. She directed the Nickelodeon playoff game. I mean, I, I, Suzanne Smith, I've written about her many times. Just Google her. But you have to, again. You have to stop um, there because I have to the, tell you two the, more things about her. Number one, ahead. she was on that 84. Yeah, she was like a runner, a P. She, she did something. So she and I oh, wow. have been close for a thousand years. Yeah. And, um, she did well. She's the only woman who directs NFL games. I mean, and and person. Well, I don't know first. first and only. Not for yeah, not only for a decade, sorry, but she is currently for, the for only decade. woman I believe. And she yeah, did one Correct. of the greatest right. games I think will go down in uh, history. That was not a Super Bowl. She did. She did that AFC overtime playoff. So yeah, Correct. she's just a rock star. So I love all these women. I love that. Um, uh, we have another woman, Emily Deutsch, who actually. Yes. Yeah. She is. She's the executive producer along with Suzanne, but she went around the world with Jim McKay. Originally all those Emmys he won. She. Yes. Oh, really? She was part of the world. world She went with Pierre Salinger for three weeks around during the tour de France for him to write essays. I mean, there are so many brilliant women in this business. Wow. Yeah. uh, And again, um, I got all day for Suzanne Smith, and I got all day for oh. Pam Oliver. Two of my favorites uh, in the in the business. And if whatever John McManus and David Burson are listening, give Suzanne Smith more money because, quite frankly, I don't even know what she's making, but I guarantee she's underpaid. Do you know what else Suzanne um, Smith? Right. I have to tell you this too. Do you know what Suzanne Smith was the one who Go told ahead. her cameraman or woman? I, I I don't recall who it was when Michigan upset Tennessee in the NCAA tournament. 
and the kid Kennedy Chandler was walking down the handshake line and he got to Juwan Howard yeah. and he collapsed crying. He was so emotional. And it was like one of the great shots of the year, sports shots where Juwan was consoling the kid from Tennessee. And um, it was because Suzanne had an instinct. Stay, stay with him. He looks like he, you know, he's upset. She is. Right. Yeah, she's a great director. I mean, phenomenal. Um, I understand the sort of the um, the the downsides are sort of travel. You're away from home. Um, you know, at a certain point, how many sort of games can you cover, et cetera, et cetera. But I did want to ask you: Do you miss live TV? Do you miss being on the sideline? Do you miss being in the arena to do what you did? No, I feel years? like I've gone back to the future. I uh, I I just do stories now. I mean, I just did a huge interview with Donna Deverona for Title IX coming up. You know, Donna, she pounded those halls of Congress yeah. for 50 years. And uh, I did one with Mark I Cuban last year. Yep. Do you know Mark Cuban wanted to buy the Big Ten? He's so original and has such vision. He I and a couple guys, because he already saw the <laughs> NCAA going downhill. So, no, I feel like now it's back to when I used to do those big takeouts. The Globe was a writer's paper. We had a lot of money. So, no, I feel like uh, yep. I love doing a podcast. Madden told me you're going to love it because uh, just like this, like having conversations where you learn things. Wait, before we go, you have to tell me how the shift was for you. Like you started as a writer. G give me your journey there. I will, all right. I will tell you this. I have, I have one more question for you, and then I right. will tell you. Fair okay. enough? All right. Last question for you, Leslie, and I appreciate uh, your time and uh, – um, this, again, this is really sort of fascinating for me because I, I sort of I'm fascinated by um, just people's careers, particularly those who came before me. It strikes me that and maybe you've done this. So if you've done this already, I apologize. But some school really should ask you, maybe at your alma mater, Boston College, to like teach for us either as an adjunct. I don't know if you want to do this full time, but like to me, like. You would be so great in a classroom figuring out a uh, course curriculum on sports journalism or just even like maybe uh, how you see sort of issues that face sports journalists today. I just think like your almost nobody has your background and resume and you'd be so valuable, particularly if I was like a 20 or 21 year old student who wants to get into this. Whether it's BC, I don't even. You, I don't, I'm not even sure you live in Boston anymore. Maybe you live in Florida. Has have any colleges ever invited you or asked you to do this? I'm not talking about just to speak on a one-off, but I'm talking about for a semester. Obviously, they'd have to. You'd have to negotiate with them. They can't really afford your real rate. You'd have to. You'd have to cut them cheaper. But I don't know. Has anybody ever asked you this? Because I think you'd be awesome at it personally. Thank you. Yeah. Well, thanks. For, yes, I've actually had an, a number of offers, and my mother was a teacher, so I um, I cherish you know what teachers do, and uh, I do think. I mean, during COVID, I think I taught a class at sixty uh, or forty colleges. Uh, but yeah, I think I did. I mean, everybody, right? Because everyone was looking for a class. I also in person. I taught a couple of Arthur Miller's classes at NYU Law School, and I was terrified, Richard. It was uh, constitutional law. And uh, remember, and he had been on Good Morning America. I think, I think Harvard Law has a chair endowed for him. And it was terrifying. But um, I, I, I try to counsel younger people in our business, and you tell me what you think. I think you need three elements to succeed. I think you need passion. You know, if you don't love it, don't do it, because... 
you'll be envious of somebody or angry. Uh, I think you need knowledge. Knowledge is unassailable. You know, can you see the safety blitz? Can you see the zone defense? And I also think you need stamina, which, um, you know, I'm, I'm uh, grateful that I've had opportunities to myself be one of those older um, people still working at a network level because the Ferris wheel comes down. It goes up, but it comes down. Like, like tell me, what do you think people today need if they're coming along? Well, I agree with all that. I mean, obviously, passion, I think, uh, and an interest uh, in what you do, a real visceral interest in what you do is important. Uh, you know, knowledge, education, obviously, goes without saying. Um, I think what I would add to um, what I would add to that is experimentation. Don't be afraid to um, don't be afraid to throw yourself in the new mediums, or don't be afraid to try something new because maybe you'll be at the ground floor of whatever the next new thing is. And then finally, and again, they don't often teach us in journalism school, but there's a real skill and art to networking. And I think the reality is it's a small business, even though there's a lot of people in the business. And many of the jobs that exist are are through word of mouth, through pipelines. This is why, honestly, people of color uh, many times have a disadvantage, uh, like an institutional disadvantage. So one thing that should be taught in all these places, I think, is just how to go about expanding your network so that you can put yourself in a position when a job does happen that you're, you know, at the foot of the, of the hiring person. But I will say, and again, like, I think, um, I'm glad you've taught that. I think you could totally do this. I can tell you my mom taught until she was 77 at a college. So like the one cool thing about like teaching is there really is no age limit on a lot in a lot of professions in our life. They do put an age limit on something, uh, teaching generally speaking, is not necessarily um, one of them. But before we get out of here, what uh, you should uh, you should mention the podcast that you're doing and where people can get it. Oh, thanks, uh, uh, Scott Greenstein. As you know, the president of Sirius, Sirius yeah. XM, great guy. Uh, he called and said, "Okay, uh, it's time for you to do a podcast." And um, I'd been on quite a few of them, and I'd said, "Yeah, okay." And I said, "Look, I, I'm not a hot take person. I'm not that doesn't interest me as much. I mean, I observe it." I mean, I, it's not my style, but I think that Stephen A. Smith and Mad Dog are a scream. I think they are so much fun to watch, but it, it's not my style. And I said, you know, I'm in the business of, of learning as much as I think I can offer. So I'd love to have just conversations with people. He said, great. And I said, um, okay, then uh, it's on Sirius XM, but you know, it's called In Conversation with Leslie Visser. And I've had really a wide range for everybody from... Billy Jean to Ray Allen to um, uh, Jason Clark, who played um, yeah, Jerry West. Winning time. Yeah, yeah really interesting. He said he reached out to him and Jerry West. Uh, tell me how you Doesn't feel about that. Because, you know, as someone who knew Jerry West pretty well, particularly through all those Lakers Celtics, it's such a terrible depiction of him. On the other hand, do we have to give over that that's what Hollywood is? Yeah, I, I you know, I'm probably bias because the person who wrote the book is a friend of mine, Jeff Perlman. So I, I, um, and I have seen Perlman's sort of take on this. Here's what I would say, Leslie, I think HBO makes it very clear. This is a dra uh, This is a dra You know, it's, this is drama. This is, it's not reality and they are over exaggerating the characters. That said, if I was Jerry West, I'd be ticked off. So I'm sort of a hypocrite here in that. Like if they were making, if that was the portrayal of me, like I would be ticked off because like, Imagery is is very important, and 
young people don't know Jerry West, and they're they're gonna take this image and they're gonna think this is Jerry West, this crazy guy uh, for the Lakers. I will say, having watched the whole series, I think he's the most. He might be one of the most interesting characters, yeah. and his character does sort of evolve. So on the one hand, it's like it's dramatic. Like you watch the basketball action. Like these are actors. Like you know what I mean. There, it's a you can tell it's not a real, it's not real basketball. But I don't want to be a hypocrite here because like if someone was saying that about me, I'd be ticked. So I kind of couched it. I'm taking a cheap uh, way out. So I see, I see both sides. I don't think Jerry West will win his lawsuit because I think the the reality is I think HBO has presented enough to the public that they're not saying this is a um, a true documentary or reflection of Jerry West. Um, well, Bob's- but I'll be curious. Legally, I'll be curious to see like where that goes because it is an interesting case that you could see others maybe sort of pursuing that same avenue where maybe they do say this is like our, this is a true documentary and then they they muddle up who the person is. Well, Jeff Perlman uh, um, said that he he thought that Jason Clark uh, was well cast and that what he's an amazing, yeah, amazing. He did Ted Kennedy and he almost got nobody gets a Boston accent. Right. And I don't know if you know, Jason Clark, when I had him on the podcast, he is the son of a sheep shearer from Australia. <laughs> Didn't know that. Yeah, wow. I asked him if his dad is the son. Of, yeah, I asked him, was your dad in the sheep shearing championship? <laughs> Oh, that's I just have fun on these things. But I do think that the depictions always affect somebody like I know this is going to seem why is she going by way of Chicago, you know, long way around for a story. But I remember being in Germany once and those people never watched the sound of music because it wow. depicted the Germans, of course, you know. Yeah. yeah right. So. right. Uh, by the way, I will say that, I will say this about you, Leslie. I don't know if you intentionally did this or just maybe it's just because you travel a lot. If you were to ask me where you were from, I would never say the Boston area. Like you have a, to me, like maybe this is a bit of a cliche. You have a very flat Midwest. It's you sound like you are from the Midwest as a sort of a generic Midwest, not Chicago, like Ditka, Chicago. Mm -hmm. But like I feel like you could be from anywhere. Did was that intentional with all your years of television, or am I? My ears. Uh, well, two things. One, my dad was from another country. My mom didn't have an accent. She was from the Berkshires, but we moved. Um, uh. My parents got divorced on our 11th move. So <laughs> I lived wow. in Baltimore. I lived in Ohio. We lived in Sweden. Uh, you know. Oh, okay. So that so this yeah. explains this. You have a, you're an amalgamation of Correct. a lot of different. Which was uh, great for being a accents. journalist, I think. You know that. Oh yeah, great for being. I mean, you know, I'm sure. Network consultants will say they want you to be, you know, from nowhere, oh, basically. You which know is what? Like a, a I meant it was great moving all the time. <laughs> Not well, yeah, even well, where's better. yours? Yeah. What, wait, Are, before you go, you didn't tell me about yourself, which that's a fair trade. No one wants no, no one I wants do. to hear about me, Leslie. They hear, they hear enough on this podcast. Yeah. My, uh, my um, parents were from New York. They moved out to... Um, Long Island, uh, when we were young, they very, I'm a product of a very, very young, early divorce. And so then in my background, I have, uh, Buffalo, I, I lived in Buffalo for seven years, uh, lived in New York for New York city for 21 and now Toronto for four. So I'd like to think that I don't, while you probably would think that I'm from the East coast of the U.S. I don't think I have the heaviest New York accent at all. So that's yeah, probably, at all. but probably isn't good um, Toronto? I, I was, you know, fortunate. I 
Toronto, you got to roll well, the yeah. R's. Toronto. Toronto. But, but yeah, I did those team. World yeah. Series, and gosh, it was so much fun, those teams. You did yeah, 93 yeah, and, and 92? Oh, that, and that, yes, and 91 right? was um, the, the loss, but it was the great Black Jack Morris, 10 innings. When, oh, awesome. Oh, yes, my God, you did yes, that twins so, The baggies. <laughs> so, yeah. I, Chris, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, people, I seriously, I mean, again, People have no idea if they went through your entire resume, just how much amazing stuff you covered. It's crazy. Yeah, well, you know, even the, I had all the Big East, right? Which was just so powerful. Do you think, by the way, I think Dave Gavitt, you can make an argument he was the greatest commissioner in the history of sports. Might be. Great college, I would say. I mean, you know, it's hard to compare the the pros, but he's, yeah, he was revolutionary. Before I let you go, by the way, I know you, I know you know this, but, uh, my good friend, Jane McManus, you know, named her roller, uh, Derby it, career after you. That's probably the, that. Is that? Oh, that I mean, was, I know you're getting this Emmy, but is that not the highest I did have honor? A horse Someone named dedicating after me their at, roller at derby, Sarbin, which is like the lowest, um, uh, did? track. It's out of business now, but yeah, it was, uh, La, La Vista. What was the horse name? Vista? Making it sound kind of French, but, um, it was, uh, oh, awesome. The College World Series, I used to do it with uh, Jim Cott and Greg Gumbel. And Jim and I were both horse racing guys. I, I tried owning, disaster idea, tried owning a couple. And so we would go and watch the simulcast <laughs> of the Belmont at Axarbon, which is Nebraska, spelled backwards. And we would be in the car. Greg Gumbel would be saying, yes. so for yep. Jim Cott and Leslie Visser, I'm Greg Gumbel. And Jim and I would be in the car going to Axarbon. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Well, then we have I to meet at the racing. summer Anybody place who likes to be. Is, uh, thumbs up. Yeah. Well, you'll probably have better seats than me because you're Leslie Visser. <laughs> no, I'll get you in the club. It's not that big a clubhouse. Uh, all right. There you go. All right. Leslie, let me give some quick. Let me. I have to end this to, to give some, some of your highlights here. Okay. Leslie Visser this month will be the first woman to receive the Emmy Sports Lifetime Achievement Award. Um, again, this was a honor that Leslie received in 2020. Actually, good on the – I really – it pains me to uh, praise the Emmys, uh, Leslie, but I'll do it. Good on them to, uh, to, you know, to keep this award for a couple years so that Leslie can do this in person and celebrate. Obviously, celebrate with um, her friends and family and colleagues. That's happening at the Lincoln Center's Frederick P. Rose Hall on May 24th. So as Leslie and I taped this, eight days away from this. And again, we're talking about – First woman enshrined in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. First woman on the NBA Finals. First woman on the World Series. First woman on the Final Four. I mean, again, it's like a, basically a series of firsts for Leslie's career. Leslie, it was an absolute pleasure to uh, to do this. I've been wanting to do this for a while. Um, continued success. I'm glad you're doing this podcast. And again, I, I really do. I hope, if nothing else, even if it's like uh, one of these companies that can sort of set up uh, a camera in your office like maybe you talk to like 40 colleges or something like that even for one-offs uh i just think you have so much to offer just given what you've done that 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 would be a very cool thing um for you to do so i do hope you continue that and thanks so much for joining me today on the sports media podcast richard it's been such a pleasure long overdue and maybe we'll find out a way to teach together oh my god now you're now you be putting might be putting money into my family because i could for trade Al off your Michael's name Leslie, <laughs> Yeah, let's, uh, yeah. yeah. One, that's not happening. Two, we're definitely not getting Brady money. <laughs> no, not that. Hey, thanks, Richard. Thanks, Leslie. We'll talk soon. All right, as I said at the top, very big news for my next guest. Uh, let's see again how my six years of Spanish back in the day have held up. Ileana Limon Romero 
This month became the first female sports editor in the history of the Los Angeles Times. And she's the only Latina sports editor at a major U.S. newspaper. Uh, very, very, very big news in my world. And I'm pleased to be joined by Eliana on the Sports Media Podcast. First, congratulations. And second, uh, apologies if uh, my Spanish sort of uh, petered out at the end of my senior year of high school. But uh, it's one of my regrets, Eliana. I should have I should have continued that on. It would have, would have been incredible to be fluent in New York City. I can tell you that. Thank you so much for the warm welcome. I appreciate the, the greeting. And no, you did great. I, uh, thank you. All right. So here, there's a lot to get to because to me, you have a really fascinating job. So, you know, I, I want to start sort of big picture for my listeners just so they can get a sense of sort of uh, what you do. So what does a sports editor at a major Metro Daily like the Los Angeles Times do as best uh, as you could describe sort of what your daily weekly responsibilities are? So I am responsible for helping direct a team of about 30 people who are a mix of reporters, uh, web producers, and editors collaborate together for a variety of, of projects and products that puts, are put together by the Sports Department of the Los Angeles Times. That includes the traditional daily newspaper, a daily miracle. That is Atticus Romero jumping in to say hello and give you good morning oh, greetings. Oh, Atticus. Good name for it. Good name. Yeah, for yeah, yeah. So, okay, so we we do a mix. We have thirty people on our team uh, who work on a variety of different projects and products. Of course, traditionally, daily print newspaper, the Daily Miracle, putting that together and getting everything done. Uh, but then again, responding uh, digitally, nimbly uh, to all things online, twenty four hour news service in that sense, uh, and engaging readers where they're at, where they come to us in a variety of different platforms and ways. And then looking at opportunities for innovation, uh, whether that be through podcasts, video, uh, just all sorts of other ways uh, where we think we can creatively help tell the story of Southern California sports. So it's it's directing that. It's really going over idea generation and talking with people about what we could be doing next and clearing the hurdles that get in the way of people doing those great things. So that can come in a yeah. variety of forms. That's, that's that that is a big job. That's conducting a significant orchestra. All right. So a couple of questions I have on that. You 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 joined the paper. I should mention, Eliana was um, sports editor at the Orlando uh, uh, Sentinel, I believe, prior uh, to this job. So she had obviously been at a significant paper before the LA Times. But you were the you were the newspaper's deputy sports editor in 2021. Now you get this bump. Is there a is there a significant difference in the two jobs? Like, is there a significant difference in a, like what a deputy sports editor does um, versus an assistant managing editor for sports? Absolutely. So I had the opportunity to come on board and work with, uh, for Chris Stone, who previously was editor in chief at Sports Illustrated. And I ran day-to-day operations internally for the sports department. So that was coordinating really specifically print and digital work uh, really more centered around that. I brought ideas for other projects, for live events, although they were limited during the pandemic, we still did them and brought ideas for a range of other things. But he primarily was responsible for some of those bigger projects and looking at how to get those off the ground in the short term and long term. Now I'm in much more of a, a leadership position in that sense of doing a little bit of a mix of both, empowering a soon to be hired deputy to help 
run some of those day-to-day operations, working on big picture idea generation with entire staff, and also looking at some of those bigger events that can be uh, great new opportunities for the Los Angeles Times staff to showcase our best writers, thinkers uh, who, who have a chance to be engaging in a, a live space that is starting to really come back in a substantial way and is part of how we engage in the community. All right. As someone who worked uh, for Chris Stone for many, many years, great to see him continuing to get uh, people uh, below him to do all his work. So great job, Stone. I see that has continued since Sports Illustrated. Uh, relax, Stone. I'm kidding. He was a, he was an excellent boss, and uh, and I'm happy for your success. But good hire uh, or good good working there by Chris. Um, all right. So the Los Angeles, as you know better than me is a very, very wide, or Southern California, I should say. My, my apologies for being East Coast. I'm probably not going to use the right terminology. Southern California is a major, major broad area when it comes to covering sports. You have all these pro teams, which obviously people are interested in. You have all these colleges, the UCLA's, USC's, et cetera. They have a massive amount of high schools, and high school football in that area, uh, not high school football, but high school sports in that area is massive. So like, how do you approach covering Los Angeles, Ileana, given its... Uh, it's such a large spread. I mean, and I'm sure uh, I don't have to tell you this. You know, ideally, you'd like 100 staffers to cover this like area because there's so much potential stories out there to me. Absolutely. I think really it's just a focus on Southern California's favorite teams, what readers clearly gravitate toward, and then what they're most interested in. And it's, it is a wide range of things. I think you can look at it as limiting, like, oh, my gosh, if we just have, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 more people, we could do these incredible things more more places we could be, more opportunities. But I mean, I think it's in- incredibly exciting with the team that we have. It's a lot of resources, still a dynamic, smart group that looks and tries to deliver engaging, unique things that no one else has seen. I think that really helps us. We challenge ourselves to elevate the coverage, to not just be present and record the events of Southern California, because that obviously is is a massive undertaking and and also there's some duplication there there's others who are in that space and it's not necessarily what your average reader listener watcher is really going for at this point you can get the basics in a lot of different spaces so what can we do that really elevates that and makes us kind of an essential part of who they are and what they do as they consume sports news about the area that they're from or the area that they're most passionate and interested about do you think when you're doing your job, do you think digital first or print first or do you or has your brain sort of got to the point where you're like it's a mix and match? You think you think, you know, you think for or maybe you think just everything in some way is a multi multimedia uh, piece of content. But I'm curious because, you know, the news, the print newspaper, obviously, for a place like yours, a place like the Washington Post and New York Times, is still significant, still brings in revenue and income. At the same time, you obviously, you must build your your digital resources because this is the, the current and the future. So as an editor, as a as the top editor at this place in sports, how do you think? How does your brain I think work story first. I get most excited about ideas. Like, how can we connect? How is this story different? What unique thing can we can bring to the table? And then as we discuss it, we figure out what's the best way to tell that story. What is the best way to connect with people uh, who usually are the driving force behind every story idea that I get excited about? And then conceptually, what is the best way to deliver that? And the answer isn't always the same. Uh, I do love print. It's something that I grew up in. I 
had a family that owned a newspaper back in Mexico um, that I, when I was like six years old, first saw the presses running and was mesmerized by it. So it's something that I've always known, but at the same time, I'm really excited by all the different ways that we can deliver a story, all the different ways that we can connect with our audience and talk about people in our community. That has always resonated with me. And that's, that's really how I come across it. It's not, not pro print, anti print, pro digital, anti digital, uh, video, audio words. I want to be great at everything. And so I want us to understand, let's be honest about how we personally consume things and how much that has evolved and changed and what exciting things we can do to help make sure that as many people as possible get a chance to get great stories. Just so, uh, just so I, I, just so I know, what was the newspaper? What was the name of the newspaper in Mexico? La Opinion, and it was a newspaper in Torreon. Um, it was on my my great uncle was the last in the ownership group, wow. and it was it was really great. It's it's funny. Um, I really it, I came grew up in a family that really valued newspapers. My parents were not in that newspaper business, but in the El Paso Times and the El Paso Herald Post, it was a two newspaper city. And we got them every day and read them every day and talked about them. And journalists were, were thought it was thought to be an honorable profession. So that was really laying a great foundation for me. Um, I did ask my mom finally, just like right before I came to the times, why did they sell the paper? And she goes, Oh, they were tired. <laughs> it was really hard. And no one else in the younger generations wanted to do that. I was like, Oh, that'd have been an interesting thing to know early in my career. Yeah, I can relate. Okay. So it's it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work running a paper. <laughs> you have it in your blood, though. That's cool. Um, who do you envision as the uh, as a Los Angeles Times sports reader? Everyone. Like it's such a beautiful, diverse city. There's such a range of backgrounds and personalities and differences. But if you take, for example, watch a broadcast of a Los Angeles Dodgers game, and that is such a wide range of people. That is people who are young, old, uh, of all different ethnic backgrounds, who are passionate and driven by their love of the Dodgers. Those are all our readers. So it's it's being nimble and open to ways where we can deliver for all of them. Um, you are the only Latina sports editor at a major United States newspaper. Why do you think that's the case? That is a really depressing stat that has followed me. It was true when I was at the Orlando Sentinel. And then obviously I stepped into a deputy role. So there were none for a while. And now there is one again. Uh, I think that there are challenges within the industry that don't make it accessible for journalists of color as much as we would hope, in particular for women in sports media. And then Latinas, it's such a huge hurdle to be viewed in a way that you can be given these opportunities and to feel like you are put in positions to be successful, that you have some of the hurdles that people encounter sort of recognized and that there are ways to work through them. Um, the Sports Journalism Institute is really an exceptional uh, project that was spun out of the Associated Press Sports Editors, the National Association of Hispanic Journalists, National uh, Hispanic Journalists, and um, National Association of Hispanic Journalists, Asian Journalists, a whole bunch of different groups send uh, students to this. This is a, a boot camp for college journalists to go through and get a week of training where you essentially learn 
some of the tricks of the trade that I think are naturally passed on to people who come from different backgrounds and have more opportunities at their student papers, maybe don't have to carry a second job through college and the student paper job. So they just get more out of it. It's really a training ground that's excellent. So you put these kids out there, they take top internships, they build relationships, they have all these networking opportunities, and they move forth. And as we were planning for the last NHJ digital convention during the pandemic last year, we thought, you know, we should really bring in some more. We had this opportunity where we were not in person, so we get to call anyone who can join by Zoom. It opens it up a ton. You're not stuck kind of regionally or who has time in the schedule. It, it's wide open. We looked through and it was so troubling because that group has been around for decades. And we realized we just had this lost generation of Latino journalists in particular who just didn't carry through, but they were doing exceptionally in other fields. They'd moved on to other things, but because of the number of walls that they hit and lack of opportunities to sort of be taken seriously as people who were upwardly mobile and deserving of those chances, they moved on. They went elsewhere and were highly successful elsewhere. So it's really looking at why those opportunities aren't there, how little they're taken seriously within newsrooms, how little they're heard, and how much they just tend to stall and plateau very early in their careers. Uh, so a couple of things there. First, shout out to uh, SJI, uh, Leon Carter, Sandy Rosenbush. Sandy Rosenbush, somebody I worked with at Sports Illustrated for more than a decade, was uh, was an incredible mentor to me and and that's a phenomenal program. So thank you, thanks for shouting that out. The other thing I wanted to ask you is, um, you know, of course, of doing this podcast between this current one and the one I did at Sports Illustrated, I had a lot of um, uh, women of color on the podcast, and uh, Pam Oliver, Jamel Hill, um, Kimberly A. Martin, Lisa Wilson. These are people, Taylor Rooks. These are people you know. And one of the things that they said was, and these are obviously high-profile people. They're front, we call the business front-facing people. You see them. Um, they had a lot of people reach out to them, particularly black women to ask like how, you know, what is your journey? This, I want to be in sports. How can I get into sports? Um, how difficult or will this path be for you? Do you have, or have you had, um, young Latina women reach out to you to sort of say, Hey, I want to get into sports. What is your advice? Uh, you know, maybe I don't have many people, uh, who, who look like me or, or sound like me that I see on television. So, um, they track you down to try to um, maybe to get a roadmap. I wonder what, what's been your experience uh, with that? Absolutely. It's been the same as the others that you mentioned. Great friends of mine who have all been through similar experiences. And yeah, there are probably in a given week, at least a, a half dozen that I hear from new people, wow. different people coming yeah. through. That's good. I mean, that's at least optimistic. I'm happy. To yeah, no, they're, they're there. <laughs> they're very much there. And I'm thrilled with all the ones that we're getting and all the opportunities that are coming their way. Uh, and chances that we get to, to sort of put them in position to get into the industry. To me, I feel like we are, we are more consistently opening doors and getting people into the internships and then starting to get more people into those entry-level jobs uh, on, a, on a regular basis. There are more and more Latino journalists, Latino journalists who are all over the country uh, and really all over the world. I hear from other countries as well. It's, it's not limited to that. And I'm grateful that they reach out and, and seek guidance and, and want to keep pushing through. And I do my best to connect them with others who maybe they haven't heard as much about, who haven't had as much 
prominence because we do have a lot. We do have a good number of people in, in leadership positions um, in all levels. And so connecting them with others so they can see like, hey, you know, there's not a ton of us, but there's there's a good number. We're spread out all over the country. So perhaps it just doesn't come across that way, but who can we connect you with so that you can learn more and push to move forward? But the biggest hurdle has been for quite some time, uh, not getting in the door so much as, as moving up, of finding ways to understand right. what corporate culture can look like, to understand and unlocking ways that you can be understood and be viewed as successful when you are working on different things and find ways to feel like you have a chance to move up. There's some non-insignificant hurdles to financial hurdles that are that are tough within the industry where a lot of the entry-level positions are relatively low paying. And for people who carry familial burdens of, of trying to help without generational wealth, those are those are major barriers. So like understanding what all of those are, what that looks like and how to help them navigate it is pretty big. Uh, one more on this, and then I want to get to uh, t- start talking about some of the Los Angeles teams because it's it's really fascinating to sort of think about some of the uh, the beats that are under you. Um, you know, I, someone in your position who like uh, is pioneering often you have to handle this question, and it sucks that you do. And you know, uh, this would be the same with Pam Oliver, or Jamel, and stuff like that. Uh, it sucks that you do, but there's also like, well, if you don't answer it, who's going to answer it, kind of thing. So, where is your where does your optimism or pessimism level stand in terms of the ranks of Latinas, particularly Latina women in sports media roles increasing, let's say, over the next five to 10 years? I'm extremely optimistic. Uh, we had, through the Association for Women in Sports Media, we had Sarah Spain join us and, and talk with our group last year, and she put it really well. The ceiling has never been higher. So many opportunities, so many firsts that we've just forged through, so many great women in leadership who have had these opportunities, so many Latinas who are just absolutely crushing it. Small market, big market, all over the place. They do exist and they are doing incredibly well, but the basement's also never been lower. (laughs) So there are challenges of sexism and racism that Latinas face in media that are extremely difficult and not so much a ton of the that comes only and exclusively from, you know, the corporate culture within media or, you know, from covering sports teams that are challenging in their own way, but also from the audience that feels absolutely no filter and can make a journalist who generally needs to be on social media in order to have their brand grow and in order to be recognized and promoted and amplified in most conventional spaces. That's a toxic hellscape at times for them. And so how to navigate all those different things, that's part of the basement, but the opportunities if you can forge through are tremendous. Uh, People are looking to elevate them. Uh, More people have been called out and understand that they have a level of accountability for the absence of this and and they're looking for it. So it's a range and I'm encouraged by, I celebrate every single win. I've talked with a lot of different people who've worked in diversity and inclusion within media. And they're like, yeah, I tried that. I've been doing that for 20 years. I'm over it. Like it's not changing. The numbers statistically are just not changing enough. Things aren't moving fast enough. People are too stuck in their ways and they're hiring and their promotions and who they put on camera and who they elevate to the top beats and things of that nature in all different directions. And I just feel really good about every single individual win. I feel like if I can help people move up and get opportunities and they help others. That is how we grow. That is how we push. That is how we have a major impact. 
and I take confidence and encouragement from that. I appreciate that answer. And I know maybe there are days where you, it doesn't feel like it, but I can assure you that like your represent your representation has really big significance, uh, in the industry. Um, so, um, I, you know, I hope that, uh, I hope that people, including my place at the athletic, uh, it's just smart business to hire people who reflect your, your larger community, uh, at hand. And in terms of the toxic stuff on social media, again, as a white male, a massive majority in this business, I couldn't even imagine what it's like to, to get that, that kind of vitriol. And it's sometimes it's a good reminder when I start getting pissed off at like stuff coming my way, like in many ways, how easy I have it. All right. So I want to, uh, I am, uh, <laughs> I'm kind of fascinated by just like those who are assigned to the Los Angeles Lakers. Cause it's like, just like, it's a never, en- I mean, I'll just kind of say it like lately, it's just a never ending shit show. I'll just be very blunt. And like, um, there, it, it's a, the con- it's, con- it's like an incredible content factory in that there's never a day or a sort of a story that is not of, um, significance and interest. I know even from my limited time spending in Los Angeles, how much people care about that team, uh, you know, it really crosses over to many parts of, uh, of LA. So I just want to start there. Like when you think about covering the Lakers, like, am I correct? And just like, you could sort of even never do enough Lakers stories. Cause there's always something coming from that. Like when they're good, they're fascinating when they're bad. They're maybe even more fascinating. That's correct that there is an insatiable appetite for Laker stories, but but readers and listeners and followers, they generally evolve. So they, they do have discerning taste in that there has to be a, a there there. There's an insatiable appetite for good Laker stories. You do need to move them all forward because if it's a mundane one, they, they don't have time. Uh, there's so many options for people's time. Like that's the thing. And so much competition in the space, like covering the Lakers, but yeah, there's no shortage of interest. And I do always think that when you're covering a team in terms of just the boom and reader interest and curiosity and antagonism around the one that people are so passionate about, they're either extremely good. And that's very exciting because a lot of people are invested and interested or they're extremely bad. And a lot of people are very frustrated and very curious and interested in like, how is this going to change the middle? Not, not always a lot of fun to cover a little bit harder, but we go for not the middle of uh, most of the time. And I think there's just always a passionate stake in what this team does and how it proceeds. Um, I think there's a lot of curiosity about how they're going to solve this puzzle, the pickle that they're in and where they're at and how that's going to come together. I think there is a belief that they will, which is an interesting level of confidence given the current situation, but how that's going to come together, how that's possibly going to come to pass. That is the great mystery in Los Angeles right now. The, I I understand that a lot of your teams are national teams. So there's really, it's competitive uh, by those nature, but given, um, given ESPN's investment in the NBA and given ESPN's investment in that way with the Lakers, um, is the, is the Lakers the most competitive beat at the that the Los Angeles Times covers, given the national interest in addition to local interest? I know the Dodgers uh, would be the same paradigm, but the reality is baseball is more of a bit of a regional sport than uh, than basketball. So, how do you see it from your perspective? I mean, they're really like one A and one B in terms of level of competition and push, even though um, they, it is more spread out. As you said, the the Dodgers pull more but unquestionably there's a fascination with the lakers number of celebrity athletes who are on the lakers 
the different storylines surrounding the Lakers is is just such rich territory. Yes, right. I mean, been, even winning time, people are fascinated by by the story of this team from thirty plus. We years. all are. <laughs> we all are as how that's come <laughs> together. And fortunately, like we have an exceptional entertainment team as well that we collaborate on because these you things do. all yeah. cross both directions and we work really closely together. And that's an exciting thing as well because we're we're pulling all of these different resources and sharing these tips and leads. But yeah. I think it is uh, unquestionably the most competitive and, and we have both, you know, some outstanding writers on it. Dan Wojcicki is our lead on the Lakers beat. We've got Brad Turner, better known as BT across the NBA, who is exceptional in his sourcing. He's been here for what seems like forever since the eighties covering Lakers and Clippers and just really understanding all the personalities, you know, Jerry West takes his call every single time. That's a great position to be in, <laughs> to have someone yeah, of that nature. Especially now. <laughs> yes, it is. Um, and then Andrew Greif, you know, also contributes significantly to our NBA coverage off of his base covering the Clippers and just works together in that space. But we have multiple columnists. Bill Plaschke obviously got Jeannie Buss to say an awful lot <laughs> and had a yeah, I read that. really Good. wide-ranging interview asking every single fan question possible during that time, you know, we, we just have a, a great team that comes together to push for coverage in that space. But yeah, we, we know it's, it's highly competitive because it's of great interest and it's just a great team that we get a chance to cover. Yeah. You mentioned the entertainment uh, coverage at LA times. Let me just give a, like a public shout out. I've never met her. Uh, so this isn't like some, I'm not giving like a friend a shout out. Meg James, the Los Angeles times. If you want to read somebody when it comes to covering like sort of corporate media, the business of television, her coverage of the Alec Baldwin, um, uh, shooting on the set of rust. Like to me, it's Pulitzer prize worthy stuff. She's just an incredible reporter, uh, and has just sort of owned that, uh, story. So if you're interested in the, uh, to people listening, if you're interested in, maybe you will be obviously, cause given you're listening to this podcast, the, the sort of someone who covers the business of television and movies and digital Meg James, fi- find that name on Twitter. Uh, she's an a- amazing reporter. Um, Elian, who, in your opinion, what team is the most, I mean, if you want to give this away, what team is the most press friendly in Los Angeles and what team is the most challenging to deal with when it comes to, um, how they interact with the Los Angeles times. Ooh, press friendly. I mean, I think there are quite a few that are really strong that, that are really helpful. I love the chargers. Yeah. The chargers are exceptional. The Kings are wonderful too. Um, there's quite a few different ones and the Kings are front of mind because they just um, wrapped up their, their playoff run. Um, I think yep. when you generally look at it, you look at teams that, that don't necessarily that pack the house every night and don't necessarily feel like they have to answer questions. Those generally are the ones that are less, less inclined to play ball or try different things or to be as open to special requests or, or unique ideas that we have because they control their own media. They control the audience, they have a packed house, they have less of a, of a need to interact in the same way. So our behemoths are who they are. And we recognize that, but we continue to try to forge positive relationships and do the best we can. And honestly, we don't have them on board. It's okay. We still find ways to tell the story. Sometimes it's actually easier if you don't have uh, that sort of situation because it just opens up what you can do and you just forge forward without really regard or worry for that interaction. Yeah. No, you just described the uh, New York Knicks public relations staff from 1990 to like 2012. Um, the um, high school, I want to just get just two quick ones on college and high school. 
high school sports in Southern California is unbelievable. I mean, the amount of talent, obviously, that exists there. You see so many um, high school athletes who eventually play in the pros, either in the NFL or the NBA or MLB, et cetera. Uh, how do you approach uh, high school coverage? And I think what I'm really interested about is, you know, when I was younger, like there used to be this sort of uh, this thought process that like high school coverage was going to be the differentiator for a newspaper sports section. And that was going to be the thing that would keep newspaper sports sections afloat with cash. Um, but what's the reality of that kind of thinking today in 2022? I wish people had carried through that idea because I actually do think that there is We've seen a massive response with every high school feature and every story. Because nobody else covers it. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people ceded it to recruiting sites and to local niche sites and opted to go in different directions where there was a time in this industry where page views drove a lot and page views are just the number of people who visit a story. But fortunately, a lot of places have had to transition and think more critically about those numbers, you get programmatic ad revenue, just ad revenue off of what's on a site, what's on a what's on a website, number of ads you might come across. But that has not been enough. Those, that's not a ton of money. That's not going to pay the bills whenever the print runway finally does run out. And so there's been more of an emphasis on subscriptions, digital subscriptions that people can come through and you, you sustain audience in much the same way you did when you had print subscribers. And those digital subscribers, like that's that's a lot, that's a bigger hurdle. That's a higher hurdle. So typically what we found and what most people across the industry that I've talked with have found is that, you know, you're, you're breaking news on your big beats. Absolutely. If you have something exclusive, that's going to demand attention and generate a potential subscription. Your huge investigative enterprise and depth features, just unique storytelling that people can't get anywhere else. That's also going to generate subscription but also local sports. High schools do incredibly well for us in terms of generating new subscriptions and having that audience. They're not going to have that like slot machine page use that a Lakers group is going to get. And unfortunately, before, before at a time, before the industry really understood completely what the next step might be, they cut a lot of high school sports coverage throughout the country. And that was really uh, to the benefit of the two, four, sevens and the rivals and the on threes of the world that have sprung up to try to deliver some of the recruiting aspects of that coverage. And then niche niche sites have popped up all over the place to try to step into that void. And fortunately, we're moving in a, a really positive direction for high school coverage. We have an exceptional high school lead in Eric Sondheimer, who knows all of Southern California so well, knows every coach, every athletic director, every principal that he can reach out to. And we have a network of different freelancers and people who work with us who help us stay on top of the biggest high school sports stories and the the top athletes worth watching within Southern California. It's a space we're trying to grow though, because the audience is really supportive of it and honestly demanding of it at this point. I'm uh, I'm, uh, counterintuitively, I'm kind of a, a buy, buy, as opposed to sell on the Pac-12. I think there it's been an undervalued conference nationally and I think they're not they're one cycle away, you know, the USC's, the UCLA's and Stanford. Maybe I'm even thinking more football than anything else from I think really having significant national interest. Um, that's obviously different than what the local interest would be. With those programs as well, particularly obviously like uh, um, you know, 
the Pac-12, they're incredible when it comes to like just like as a conference, particularly women's sports, just all the stuff they win, whether it's women's basketball or track and field, et cetera. So at a paper like yours, obviously you're going to staff up, I'm sure USC and UCLA heavy, but um, what's the interest? Like, I really have no idea. Like for a paper like the LA Times, what are you seeing in interest in terms of uh, stories about those colleges? Tremendous interest, Uh, you know, in terms of just overall volume, USC football is certainly driving the needle right now. There's a lot of curiosity and interest in what Lincoln Riley is doing and yep. how the teams come together and whether this can really come back to be a championship contender. But I also think there's a fascination at UCLA with Chip Kelly switched to men's basketball. And I think UCLA basketball obviously has been an institution for a very long time. And McCronin has turned it into a team that the community has really fallen in love with by in part really relying on local talent that people know that people have been really invested in. So we've seen a lot there and we see when we branch out to cover some of the smaller schools in the area and some of those Olympic championship contenders that we have, you know, consistency of national championship contenders in the area, community response as well. So it's, it's really trying to strike a balance there. We, we go with our core with USC and UCLA for sure, but there's an appetite there across the board. And for us, it is knowing that some of those voices are going to be critical in our future Olympic coverage. We are consistent in covering the Olympics and also of our, even our world cup coverage of just understanding that tremendous athletes come out of this area and go on to do exceptional things in their, in their fields. And so how we are prepared to help tell those stories and own those from an er- early starting point is important. All right. Last two for me, how do you see audio uh, specific to sports playing in terms of your coverage as you move forward? You know, we don't need to compete with local sports talk radio in terms of general interest audio, but I think audio is an incredibly powerful platform for very specific topics, whether it be narrative podcasts that have a chance to unfurl a story in a really special way with a unique cadence, or whether it be ones that showcase our unique voices on very specific topics. Uh, I think a general interest sports podcast is a little bit tougher because there's tremendous sports talk radio in Southern California that already kind of owns that space and, and right for them. And our team guests on that and guest hosts that and, and appears on that frequently. So it's a space we understand, but really think that there's so many opportunities with narrative storytelling. That seems like just such a ripe opportunity for us. And then, you know, there are potential opportunities to still further showcase our voices, but it, it has to be something it's a specific topic that's direct that can draw an audience and helps people understand why this podcast, among many other podcast options, is one that they should come to. All right. Last question. Indulge me for this nonsense, but I have to ask it just because it's fun to me. So LeBron yeah. James, it'd probably, be a represent, it'd probably be a representative of LeBron. I don't know if he's going to call you directly, but you get a call from a representative of LeBron James who says, Ileana. LeBron would like to write a twice a week column for the Los Angeles Times. He will donate whatever money might be to charity uh, on uh, the 2022-2023 season. Do you give him the space in uh, either in the newspaper or online to let him do that? Absolutely. I mean, I think we want to make sure that we work through the logistics of like, is this actually coming from LeBron and not LeBron's representative? But if if he <laughs> wants an opportunity to speak directly to our audience and directly to our readers. LeBron James and your representatives, if you are listening to this podcast, we welcome you in the Los Angeles Times. We've featured Kareem quite frequently, and we're happy to have you. 
Good writer. Yeah, Kareem. Oh, by the way, that's the correct answer, Eliana. You, 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 you run, don't walk. Absolutely. To, to get that. Um, all right. Uh, as I mentioned here, Ileana Limon Romero is the uh, lead sports editor for the Los Angeles Times, the only Latina sports editor at a major United States newspaper. Uh, she just spent a pretty good 35 minutes selling uh, that coverage to you. So even if you're not... I could certainly, uh, I'm not just saying this, I would say this even if she's not on this podcast. Uh, there are just, if you're into like, you know, journalism, storytelling, reporting, to me that's like one of the essential newspapers along with the Washington Post and New York Times you should really be subscribing to. The LA Times, by the way, is pretty affordable uh, when it comes to a digital subscription as well, relatively speaking. So um, I'm rooting for that paper or that outlet, I should say, to succeed because if they succeed, I feel like we all succeed. Um, Ileana, I, I admire your work and um, and I admire your journey. Um, I'm really glad we got a chance to do this, and congratulations. I mean, you are a big dog now running one of the most important outlets when it comes to sports in, uh, in the United States. So thanks for joining me today on the Sports Media Podcast and continued success. Thank you so much. All right, back in the studio, my thanks to Leslie Visser and, uh, and Ileana Limon Romero for their time and insight. That was, uh, that was great. I really enjoyed doing this podcast. Uh, podcast before this one, some uh, media talk with Chad Finn, NFL Schedule, uh, Drew Brees, Tom Prady, uh, NBA uh, viewership chatter. So if you're, you know, if you're a diehard sports media fan, you'll, uh, you'll like that 50-minute conversation with me and Chad. Some of the other uh, podcast guests that uh, I've had over the last couple weeks, Larry Kalmus on calling Rich Strike's amazing Kentucky Derby win, did a life after sports media career, a conversation with Amy Moritz, Amy K. Nelson, and Cat O'Brien about how they left the profession and what they're doing now. Covering the NFL draft with three of my colleagues for The Athletic, Michael Sean Dugar, Rianne Walker, and Tashawn Reed, Susie Culber has been a recent guest on this podcast. Gus Johnson's been a recent guest on this podcast. Lisa Byington and Kate Scott recent guests on this podcast uh, i say this every week but it does matter if you like this stuff please head to uh, itunes or google play spotify wherever you listen to this podcast please leave us a five-star review and a nice note that is how this podcast continues want to thank um patrick antonetti for all his work and uh and uh care for this podcast thanks to everybody at canes 13 for their support and thank you for listening we'll see you soon on the sports media podcast